All right, now what do I do? It's so much harder to host this show than it is to sit there and make smart aleck remarks. Uh, This is Colin McEnroe. John Dankosky is, uh, of course, following Iron Maiden around the country on the Book of Souls tour. He never misses a big Iron Maiden tour. So I'm in the host seat, uh, and I guess by geographical positioning, uh, Kevin Rennie, columnist for the Hartford Current, is is in the sit-there-make-smart-aleck remarks seat. Uh, and then holding everything together for us is Susan Bigelow, who writes for CT News Junkie. And then Matt Kaufman is, what would your role here be? I don't know. What is my role what here? What is your role here? I think I'm, I'm filling a third seat because yeah. you couldn't come up with anyone you're the, you're else. You're kind of the smart kid. I think you're sort of the smart kid. I think you're class. kind of the smart kid. Let's yeah. be honest here. Uh, so anyway, that's what we're going to do. We're going to have a little conversation here, as we always do at the Wheelhouse, about items in the news. And we're going to start off with some good news for Governor Dan Malloy. And how often do we start out with those words? Not very often. On Monday, the John F. Kennedy Library Foundation announced our governor is this year's winner of the Profile in Courage Award for his stance on the resettlement of Syrian refugees. Now, should I start with a fair and balanced reaction or a deeply cynical one? Let's go deeply cynical. Kevin, take it away. Colin, do you, <laughs> do you recall Do you recall your own Sunday column in the summer of I do. 2014? I, do. I know where you're going. Yes, on the, on the path of truth. Right. When uh, Governor Malloy refused to offer uh, assistance to those uh, children who were refugees from mostly Central America, yeah. Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. I was very upset with him at the time. Well, you were upset with him then. I'm sure you're still upset with well, him. Well, no. I, clearly, my column reached him. He changed so much. I think it's the only time I've ever written a column that changed the heart uh, of a politician, so because he was so much nicer about the Syrian refugees. So you he mean it go, wasn't me? That's so he not could, why he could go visit a Syrian refugee in New Haven, yeah. uh, but offered no help at all to those children who were here alone in the United States. Right. And I just i I think it tells uh, I think it tells a fuller tale. Uh, and of course, the difference was there was an election coming up uh, when the uh, children from Central America were here, came here. That was a very deeply cynical response. Um, by the way, uh, if you want to call in with your own cynical or idealistic response, 860-275-7266. You can comment on our website, wnpr.org slash where we live, or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter and all that kind of stuff at where we live. So, Susan, sometimes awards like this, I think of uh, President Obama's Nobel, which was – you know, given to him rather early, seem not so much an affirmation of the person receiving the award, but perhaps a rebuke of the surrounding society. And I'm wondering if maybe that's what's behind this particular award to, to uh, Governor Malloy. Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. Um, first off, the award, I think it's, it's fairly well-deserved for him. Uh, it, it was, if not a courageous stance, well, it was a pretty, it was a, it was a fairly difficult thing to do. It was not a necessarily an easy stance to make, and there was a lot of people putting a lot of pressure on him to, to reverse that stance. But no, I think you're right. I think that there is a certain amount of rebuke in this um, to everybody else, to all the other governors who caved on this situation. Uh, and that it turned out that they, they kind of look foolish in retrospect, and I think they will look more foolish in retrospect and hindsight as we go forward. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, so 30 to 31 uh, governors uh, went on record, uh, 31, I think, that uh, went on record as saying, nope, no Syrian refugees, nope, nope, no, not going to do it. But, you know, Matt, this sort of 
these kinds of things lead us into conversations about the difficulty in distinguishing between Governor Malloy's role as governor uh, and Governor Malloy's role as kind of national politician, head of the Democratic Governors Association, kind of a guy who enjoys putting heat on other governors. I mean, it may be that he has genuine, deeply felt uh, conscience-stricken uh, attitudes about Syrian refugees. It's also, but we know he likes to taunt governors who've done something other than what he's doing, and he often stakes out positions for the Democratic Party that they need staked out by somebody. Yeah, I mean, there's no question that he sort of sees his role in the world more broadly than just as governor of Connecticut, and that's not necessarily uh, a bad thing. I mean, he does have uh, a leadership profile with the Democratic Party. So, uh, you know, he probably should be doing things that feel kind of democratic. Um, in this case, though, I think, you know, the, the John F. Kennedy Library Foundation basically every 25 years ago or so gives an award to an incredibly unpopular Connecticut governor. And, and I think they looked at the calendar, you know, 24 years had passed since they gave it to Weicker and they realized, oh, it's time and, uh, and sought out Malloy. I mean, it's interesting in our coverage of it. He talks about, you know, hey, I, I wish I was more popular. I, I wish I had been a governor in, in good economic times. Um, so, uh, yeah, you can be sort of cynical about his, uh, his motivation here and whether or not there's sort of some politics behind this. But, yeah, maybe he deserved, uh, you know, a little bit of an accolade for standing tall on, on one issue while, uh, you know, getting mostly brickbats uh, most of his tenure. Um, also, of course, now uh, the Kennedy Foundation has uh, boots on the ground here. They have a state legislator named Ted Kennedy. You could maybe um, let him know. You know, anybody doing anything really courageous in Connecticut? Well, I'm, I'm surprised. <laughs> I'm. I guess I'm not that surprised. But you know, the Republican governor of Utah, uh, they welcomed uh, plenty of refugees to that state. So I'm surprised that they didn't. They didn't have a joint award this year because they, they, which they do sometimes. Which they do. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, because of course I imagine at a Kennedy uh, the Profiles Encourage board meeting, they're probably eliminating a lot of Republicans mm -hmm. from consideration. And uh, you know, it could be uh, just to follow up on what Matt said. It could be that they just love a big tax increaser. Mm -hmm. That that would be Weicker and um, and Dan Malloy. Yes. So when were you a legislator when uh, Governor Malloy, uh, Governor Weicker got the. Profiles in Carnegie. I was. Yeah. I was Were you Mr. Grumpy Pants about it then? Too? I, you know, I, I thought that the idea of, of giving someone a Profiles and Courage award for turning or a turning tail on a campaign promise just a few months after he'd been elected to office was not really a profile in Courage. I, I, I do think there is something to be said for keeping your promises. So, yes, you are Mr. Grumpy Pants. Yes. Could be. In a word, yes. Uh, all right. So that may be all that needs to be said other than, you know, I don't know. I, 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 I've picked on Dan Malloy as much as anybody else. <laughs> I find myself just feeling a little bit happy that he has got anything to be happy about because Lord knows most days he doesn't. And some of that unhappiness is very much of his own creation and some of it is just foisted upon him. So I don't know. Uh, maybe let him have one happy day there, polish that award up and, uh, and then we'll move on. Uh, moving on is also what Samaya Hernandez is doing uh, with uh, Luke Brown, and she has been his community. Oh, yeah. Did you just make an exhalation? I did. Did you mean an exhalation? It's just not right. It's not right. You know it's, it's not, not right. It's not even your turn. You just talked. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, 
Well, actually, Susan, we might just be frame this by saying Luke Bronin, and I think a lot of us have kind of gone hands-off for the first few months, a uh, mayor stepping into an incredibly difficult situation, so many things that are malfunctioning in ways that are not entirely of – or not at all of his causing. But we've kind of hit the point now where I think you can ask some questions about how Luke Bronin is doing. He's had a lot of trouble this week holding uh, any kind of coalition together uh, on the city council. They just turned tail and fled over his plan to seek, uh, seek state oversight. And there's also some questions about maybe whether he made that move way too soon before exhausting all other opportunities. So before we get to the thing that makes uh, Kevin make those respiratory sounds, maybe we should say that it's, it's sort of time, right, to take the temperature of Bronin. It is. Um, I think that if you take a look at what he's he's been up to the last week or so, just I do think he's flailing a little bit. I think he's showing his inexperience. He's showing his inexperience working with these particular Hartford City Council members. Uh, politics in Hartford, it's, it's difficult. Everyone is extremely stubborn and trying to push something like state oversight through. And that's, that's a fairly big deal. Um, I can remember when the city of Springfield, Massachusetts, went through something similar uh, back about 10, 15 years ago. A, a fairly big deal. Uh, and it, it's, it's a mark of failure for anybody who is in government at that time. So naturally, there's going to be a ton of resistance to it. And it seems like he proposed this idea without having his ducks in a row in the, to begin with. He jumped the gun. It doesn't look good. And it I think it shows his inexperience and his lack of familiarity with how things can work. Well, and, and you know, Matt, I mean, the optics of this haven't been great and they haven't been great for Luke Bronin, but maybe not great for everybody else. I mean, there have been sort of big demonstrations by city workers, but also big demonstrations by Black Lives Matter and other groups. There's been at least one moment where Luke Bronin was escorted back to his office by the police, maybe being kind of protected. But I think one of the things we're seeing here is he's new. He's not only new as mayor, but he's, he doesn't have the longstanding ties in the city that some of the people on the council do. So when the people on the council know some of the people complaining to them uh, about this idea much better and for many more decades than they know the mayor who's pushing the idea. Their loyalties, I think, shift pretty easily towards these people that they've known forever. Yeah. I mean, Hartford's a very politicized city and, and I think Bronin came in with sort of, you know, I'm a super smart guy. I can maybe fix these problems. Um, and, uh, you know, if we had dictatorships, he might indeed be able to. And I think like lots of, of uh, government chief executives, they have the sense of, would you just please let me do what I know will work? And it may not satisfy everyone, but, you know, it's just sort of got to get done. And, and uh, democracy tends not to work that way and often works inefficiently. Um, and I think he has gotten sort of a harsh lesson in simply proposing what he thinks is really the smart way to go. And, you know, there may be some pain here, but really this is sort of our, our best way forward uh, without doing a little more behind the scenes work. Now, as a journalist, I'm more than happy to have politicians not play politics and just sort of come out and see what, you know, say what they mean and, and, uh, um, and have it all done, you know, front and center for everyone to see. Uh, but I also recognize the way politics works, and he probably would have been better off uh, determining if he had you know, a little more support, if he had sufficient support, or maybe he's smarter than all of us and there is some long-term game plan that this is just sort of phase one of. 
Yes, Susan. To me, it we'll, seems, we'll let Mr. Grumpy Pants have the last word. <laughs> to me, it seems like he's, he's it's not just a politics mistake, but also a leadership mistake that you go into a situation and you try to make huge changes basically right away. And that is almost never successful because you don't have time to listen to people and get everyone's buy-in first. So if you just sort of blow into town and try and make huge changes right away, especially something as fairly drastic like state oversight, et cetera, it, it's difficult. People will react badly to that. So it feels like it's also a failure of, of leadership on his part. Quick call from Josh in Hartford. Hi, Josh. You're on the air. Hey. So I have a question about that. I was at the city council meeting uh, when that was vigorously discussed. And what was confusing is that Gronin came in talking about, you know, the great fiscal crisis the city was facing. Everyone agreed. And when he was asked, would the Oversight Commission solve the problem, he basically said no. And he, he couldn't give any numbers that seemed to say that the commission would lower the deficit significantly. He conceded that most of the trouble was structural, that we needed help from the state. And so I just wonder if you guys have any thoughts on what's the strategy to go forward with a, a plan that you concede won't work? Um, well, so, Kevin Rennie, I mean, one possibility that has occurred to me was that it was never a completely serious proposal at all, that it was a bargaining maneuver. It was a way of s- sending a signal to the unions like we could do it this way or we could do it the other way, although it seemed as though he hadn't really exhausted the nice way option. That would be a very, very reckless way of negotiating. First of all, it, it would be disingenuous, but also it, it – I hate when people it, are disingenuous. It, yes. <laughs> it he would have he would he's about to it seems administer a devastating blow on his own reputation for being effective which we don't really know much yet about how effective he could be i would add this if last summer when he was spending 170 dollars a vote to unseat pedro segarra he had said oh and a few months after i'm sworn in i'm going to smother our local democracy by handing over much of state government to a unelected panel. He probably would have lost that primary. Framing, though. I think he would have framed it differently somehow. He might have. He wouldn't have used the word smother. So uh, one way we get our information about all this is obviously from whoever the communications director is for the mayor. Uh, That was until recently, Samaya Hernandez, a person we know well, a person who spent some time actually uh, in in our newsroom as well. Uh, Things have gone differently. Uh, There's now a replacement. This is something you've been writing about in Daily Ructions, your your must-read and much-read blog. So what's going on with this? Uh, She left. Mm-hmm. Uh, after just uh, three months and um, was replaced by uh, poor, hapless, uh, former Bridgeport Mayor Bill Finch's spokesperson. And uh, Samaya Hernandez was making $80,000 a year. And uh, her replacement, Brett Broster, is making $95,000 a year, which – at this time, seems like a very—it just seems like a very bad decision to pay her successor that much more. Whenever you do this, it, I don't know. The, the one I always remember season was when uh, Chris Donovan had was his name Douglas Whiting. She, he had this guy making one hundred sixty-five thousand uh, dollars to get his message out, and everybody hated the state legislature. And I thought, well, I don't mind paying one hundred sixty-five thousand dollars for somebody to kind of try to you know get other people to like me, but. It's not even working. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you think you'd be paying for a little bit more than that. Um, And, you know, just the the way that this looks is bad. It's not just the fact that, oh, the city has no money except for paying for uh, high-priced aid here. It's money for me but not for thee. But it's also, 
all right, well, you're going to pay a man a heck of a lot more money than <laughs> you're going to pay a woman to do this. In a city that, you know, where that's going to, that's going to matter to people, it, it looks, it just looks bad. It just seems an odd mistake to make. You know what I think is wrong with both of these hiring decisions, both um, Samaya Hernandez and her replacement? Not enough wine while they're talking these things over. Not enough drinking during the hiring process. That's right. Because you're, you're uh, up uh, infield way. Uh, isn't that what they do? Apparently uh, it is. <laughs> crack open a little Chateau de Neuf Pop and... Uh, and boy, that sounds like a nice job interview, doesn't it? No job interview I've ever been to. Explain uh, explain this to me. Yes. Yeah, so what, what the deal is, is apparently in Enfield... Uh, when they're hiring the town manager, and I guess they do this for other other things as well, um, the candidates go through the normal hiring interview process, but they also go to something called a social interview. Um, and that's sort of like a little wine and cheese party with uh, the members of the town council, but also their spouses. And it just it just seems like a very odd thing. And a council member, Kathleen Sarno, a Democrat, resigned her seat over this, protesting it. Um, the town attorney feels like it's kind of a gray area um, that it might not be entirely legal because you can't control that situation. You know, under the law, you're supposed to treat all applicants the same, ask them the same questions. You know, we've all been through job interviews where that's that's the case. You all have to go through the same process. But you can't control that situation when it's this social interview because who knows what's going to happen. And you, then you throw the, the candidate, uh, the, the council member's spouses into it and you can't control that either. It just seems like a, a really weird way. I've never heard of this before. Um, the mayor is defending it, but I, it just seems like a bad, bad idea. It's probably the only way they ever hire anybody in European democracies, Matt. But <laughs> like, why would you hire somebody that you haven't had some wine with? Uh, but here in, you know, in uh, blue-nosed New England, it probably doesn't go over all that well. Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, I was concerned about whether or not it was legal for the entire town council to gather and uh, uh, make decisions about the town. Um, and in fact, uh, it is uh, that basically personnel search committees can uh, – their meetings are not meetings under the law. And agencies can appoint their entire body as a personnel search committee. The FOI commission is ruled. So uh, legally, they can indeed uh, gather and, and do their thing. There are uh, some – government ethics questions on just how much whining and dining was done. There are uh, some rumors that Sarno may really have resigned because the filet mignon was cold mm-hmm. and the uh, you know, chef refused to reheat it. Um, uh, I don't know. There, there's, there's more to report on that. Our reporter, Michaela Porter, has been looking into it, and uh, I don't think she's done. I personally don't want a town manager who can't detect chocolatey tones <laughs> in, the ter- yes. in the terre noire of the new Syrah. Well, it's been a long infield tradition. I'm sure they want to keep it up. But I, I know I would just mention the inclusion of spouses in that uh, in that event may may have pushed them over the line into violating Freedom of Information Act because the spouses have no no official role, and you know it seems like something more than a personnel meeting and something a lot less than a public meeting. I don't understand why she would resign over that, though. I would think you'd stay and fight over something like that. Rather than, rather than there are many things that can cause you to leave public service, but that wouldn't that take a long time for me to put that on my list of things that would cause you to resign from this town council? Well, you as, never know. It's the Byzantine world yes. of Enfield. Yeah. I was going to say, as Susan yeah. can yes. tell you, yes. Enfield is not like other places. Yes. True. Uh, speaking of places that are not like other places, we'll quickly turn our gazes. Boy, I'm just I'm just rifling through these topics. Um, 
I'm so proud of myself. Uh, we're going to turn our gazes quickly towards uh, Rhode Island, where um, you know, I mean, we sort of we had quite a little to do here in Connecticut a few years ago with the still still revolutionary campaign. There were uh, complaints about the fact that a lot of outside uh, companies were hired as opposed to in-state companies. There were complaints about the cost, uh, which is considerably higher than the cost of the campaign we're about to discuss. Uh, but um, there wasn't the kind of blood spilled over this uh, in Rhode Island. They've actually uh, parted ways with one of the one of their marketing officials uh, over a um, tourism campaign, uh, which was designed at least in partly by the guy who did I Love New York, which is a very successful. Anyway, uh, this this is uh, the slogan. Uh, Matt Kaufman is cooler and warmer. You got it. Cooler and warmer. Right. See, it's it's cooler. And, and, and it's warm. And the answer is when I first looked at the design, no, I did not get it. Yeah. And I took it only to be uh, a reference to temperature and then wasn't sure why they were highlighting this and then realized, ah, they meant like hipper. Mm. Uh, so, but even that didn't make any sense. I mean, the, the warmer doesn't make any sense. I, sloganeering is, is very tough. I mean, I covered advertising um, for years. You know, you had mentioned I Love New York. Oh, that's very successful. I have no idea why. I don't know what it is about that that works. Why, you know, those of us who live nowhere near Virginia know Virginia is for lovers, which I think if I heard that off the bat, I'd go, wow, that sounds stupid. What what exactly are you saying here? Um, so I, I suppose I cut them some slack in, in the sense that I think this may be one of those areas where People pretend to have a great deal of knowledge and insight and experience as they're running up billables and then come out with something and just cross their fingers that the public just happens to like it. Um, it, it doesn't resonate with me. Uh, still revolutionary, I think, is better. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think is, oh, my God, you've, you've captured it. That's, uh, that's brilliant. So, you know, as long as they didn't spend a lot of money on it, I'm okay with it. It's about a $3 million campaign, which is chump change. It's chump change by Connecticut standards. And I will tell you that one difference between uh, Virginia is for lovers and I I heart New York is that um, uh, we have a song, which you'll be hearing as we end this segment, that does not mention Connecticut in it. But um, so it's always good if the name of the place is like, you know, is there in the song or whatever it is that you're doing. But, you know, I think uh, Matt makes a great point, Susan. And also, this is the kind of thing where the people in the peanut gallery, they don't necessarily know exactly what the DCF budget should be or how many correctional officers we need uh, or whether our inland wetlands regulations are being administered properly. But everybody can take a look. Everybody can kind of eyeball something like this and go, hey, that sucks. That's, I could come up with a better idea than that, right? These are, these are inevitably dartboards, if only for that reason. And I'm sure we can. Could- all come up with better slogans than that. Rhode Island, it's small and weird. <laughs> Rhode Island, it's got beaches, I guess. I like the lobsters and mobsters. Yeah. Lobsters Which, and mobsters uh, yeah. is pretty good. Rhode Island, we haven't invaded yet. I don't know why. But it's 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 one of these things where you just you just everyone thinks they can do better. Everyone always thinks they can do better because slogans seem simple. Um, ad campaigns seem simple. They're not. And but this this just seems like a big disaster to us. But hey, who knows? Maybe it could have caught on if people had been feeling a different way on a different day. 
So, um, uh, Kevin, one uh, Rhode Island official has also already been uh, effectively let go by Governor uh, Raimondo. Uh, but in fact, uh, one of the other people who's still there holding the bag and giving somewhat uh, tense and edgy uh, TV interviews is a name that we know well, that of Stephen Pryor, uh, who is former education commissioner here in uh, Connecticut in Rhode Island. He has a comparable commission in the world of commerce. Yes. He didn't have much experience for the education job in Connecticut and didn't have much experience for the um, commerce job in Rhode He's failing upward. And um, uh, you, I think what you need to remember, Rhode Island is – first of all, Rhode Island is always sensitive because it's the smallest state. It's mm-hmm. often overlooked. But uh, they had that big scandal with the tens of millions of dollars in the uh, studio – financing uh, gambit that mm-hmm. um, uh, that still rankles and there's still litigation going on and all these big things that uh, that that purport to sort of have Rhode Island fighting above its weight I think are considered suspect now in the state and yeah well, you go ahead I also I want to mention right about about these slogans being being um, uh, elusive and finding finding one that really clicks. They did. They did put it before a focus group, though, mm-hmm. and um, those are always good. Yes, yes. So they never get anything. So right. they, uh, they and I, I just imagine Governor Romano is trying very hard to raise her national profile, and this is not what she has in mind. We actually uh, failed to mention uh, one or two of the other problems. One of them, obviously, being this, the, the tourism video uh, that they have. This highly produced and very attractive looking tourism video, unfortunately, has uh, somebody skateboarding in front of a building located in Iceland in Reykjavik. Um, so that's a problem. Uh, and then <clears throat> uh, Betsy Wall, who was the person who was let go, was she was hired right before Christmas. Uh, and I think a lot of the decisions people are questioning um, were made maybe even a little bit before she got hired. But she's taking the heat on all this one. And she did in one interview not know about some weird Rhode Island tradition called Gatsby Night or something that I'd never heard of either. But um, so anyway, so right now the way things stand is I think they're keeping the logo and then dropping the cooler and warmer. Right. The logo is sort of a, a square with what – Scarfy looking things. Appears to be a sail – in the yeah. middle of it, if you're told oh, in advance that it's a that sale, is what that is? <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Actually, right. I think Kevin may have just come up with uh, Rhode Island's slogan. Which one? Rhode Island. Is that what it is? <laughs> we're failing upward. Yeah. Uh, all right. So uh, we're going to take a break, but I want you to all just tune your ears because you're about to hear the Connecticut Tourism Anthem. It never fails to stir my soul. And we're back. This is The Wheelhouse. I'm Colin McEnroe. In for John Dankosky, who's following the uh, current Iron Maiden tour across the Midwest. I think he's in Chicago tonight. But uh, he'll be back at some point. Uh, And meanwhile, we've got a great panel here. Susan Bigelow, columnist for CT News Junkie. Kevin Rennie, attorney and columnist for The Hartford Current and also proprietor of Daily Ructions, uh, his blog. Uh, Matthew Kaufman, investigative reporter for The Hartford Current. Happy to hear from you on Facebook or Twitter at Where We Live. You could call in, too, 860-275-722. So we do switch topics very, very fast. So, um, in fact, on uh, April 26th, we're going to finally have our Connecticut state primary. It's uh, Melania Trump's birthday as well. Uh, so you get two celebrations done at once. Although, uh, Kevin, you will only be observing one of those things because you have declared yourself a hashtag never Trumpian. True. I have. 
Tell us more about this. And I, it's, it's causing me some strife. Are people being mean to you on comment threads? No, I no, won't it's stand not that, for that. It's not that. It's that. It's that I'm just as it goes. As each day gets closer to the primary, I am stunned at people who declare themselves as voting for supporting Donald Trump. I just I don't understand it. I don't don't understand it. Well, I am hopeful, however, that somebody, uh, John Kasich or, or or Ted Cruz, can give him a race in Connecticut. Well, this is I mean, it's an extraordinarily difficult thing to evaluate, right? I mean, the, their campaign operations season are nascent, if existent at all. There's pretty much basically no polling for a really long time. Uh, about any of this. And, and even if there had been a poll a month ago, it seems as though the landscape's changing all the time. And Wisconsin results last night, you know, are kind of once again confirming that different groups are coming forward to send different messages to different candidates. Uh, on either one of these, uh, either one of these parties, I mean, you can kind of guess what's going to happen in Connecticut, but I don't feel like I'm guessing in a really well-informed way. Do you know something I don't know? That's what no, I'm I don't know anything at this point. I don't think, but I mean, that's the, that's the tagline of this, this campaign. I don't know anything. Um, and I can't predict what's going to happen. It feels to me like Trump probably has a pretty good shot here. That's what I think is going to happen is that he's going to do very well. Um, and again, like Kevin, I cannot explain it. I don't know why. I, don't, I do not see the appeal, but clearly people do. I have seen plenty of little yard signs and lots of pickup trucks with Trump stickers on them. Um, but again, I don't, I don't know. I don't see that Ted Cruz is going to have a huge appeal here. You know, if you dig into Ted Cruz, he is, he's not all that likable in a lot of ways. He's he's very difficult candidate to like. Uh, John Kasich, I don't know. I don't think that people know him. I think that they just see him as a kind of fairly moderate alternative, but as somebody who cannot win the nomination. So it's either vote for Trump or vote for somebody who is not Trump, who is a spoiler. On the Democratic side, this feels like a Bernie state to me. It feels like a Bernie state. Um, but again, it may not matter. It may be very close. The delegates could be split fairly evenly. So it doesn't necessarily matter who wins unless somebody wins big here. Um, if Hillary Clinton loses by a lot here, then it's a bigger story. But again, I think it's just going to be a pretty pretty even split. Yeah, so the, just uh, to remind people, the Democratic Party is is proportional in a slightly complicated way, but it's basically a proportional state here. So for Bernie Sanders, if he doesn't win big, uh, it's not that big a victory for him. Uh, this is the kind of state, as you suggest, that's gone for Bernie for Bernie Sanders type candidates in the past. Jerry Brown won in ninety two. That might be the the best comparison. Uh, somebody running to the left of a Clinton. Um, the Republican uh, rules are unbelievably complicated. It's a winner-take-all state sort of kind of under certain circumstances, but it's more likely to be proportional. Um, and and about, Although, Matt, I'm sort of surprised at what, one thing that Susan said. I feel like Kasich is exactly the kind of person that Connecticut Republicans have tended to vote for in the, in the past. Um, I mean, I can see – I can see how Trump might do well here, but I'd be surprised if Kasich doesn't get some numbers. Well, he's a moderate Republican in a moderate state, uh, but this is not a campaign season that has uh, rewarded moderation. Uh, and, and I think uh, that extends even into states that normally you know, might be more moderate, that, that uh, we've seen polarization, um, I mean, you know, for the entire history of the republic, but um, certainly in the last, uh, you know, eight, ten years, it's gotten... Uh, quite bad. And, and I think this is sort of the, the fruit of that, that 
Uh, we have sides that are pushing farther and farther apart. And so you see support for a candidate on the Republican side that would just be sort of unimaginable in different times and, and frankly, broad support on the Democratic side for a candidate that would be unimaginable in different times. But I think it's as if sort of the the protest vote, you know, the third party write-in vote um, is suddenly the the dominant thinking, you know, on, on both parties. And it's it's kind of interesting to watch. I'm glad I'm not registered with either party. Kasich event uh, on Friday at Sacred Are you going? Are you going? I'm not going. I'm not going. It's it's hard for me to go to University? No, it's It's hard for me. It's with the Hillary rally. No, it's hard hard for me to go to events where undoubtedly Parson Shays will be showcased, the uh, (laughs) conscientious objector turned warrior. And um, I'll give that a pass. But I would mention, if if we have time, I'll mention two things. One is Connecticut Republicans are quite accustomed to casting feudal votes. They uh, (laughs) spend a a lot of time doing that. So that may give Kasich a, a, a leg up. And um, also just there's a lot of private polling that goes on and uh, associations, businesses, and they often throw in political questions. And I understand that one corporate poll recently threw in a question on Hillary versus um, uh, Bernie Sanders and in Connecticut. And he had a double-digit lead, which probably doesn't surprise many people. But uh, remember, we're a state that voted for Jerry Brown mm-hmm. in 1992. So we have a kind of history of being contrary. So and, and to that point, Susan, we've kind of seen two things this week. The, the Mirror had an interesting story about the way that Connecticut Democrats, I mean, high-ranking Democrats talk about this race, which is Bernie's great. Love Bernie. Love Bernie. But obviously we can't go that down that road. I mean, so all these, all the high office holders who are effectively endorsing Hillary Clinton are very careful not to alienate their bases by saying anything too bad mm-hmm. about Bernie. Except this week, I mean, in fact, I mean, Chris Murphy really did get into it on Twitter. He was unhappy with things that Bernie Sanders had said uh, about uh, the Sandy Hook lawsuit, uh, trying to change the liability, eligibility of gun manufacturers. Uh, and of course, he began it the way they always do. Bernie is a friend. But this is really bad. Dems can't nominate a candidate who supports gun man- manufacturer immunity. This went on to uh, include four more straight tweets uh, he got on, on a tear about this. So this obviously is – maybe this is just a comfortable wedge issue, one where somebody could separate from Bernie and not worry about an, ruining relationships with his Connecticut base. Yeah, I think so. Um, it is different from the way that the Republicans are doing it, which is sort of with live fire and you will go – you are awful people and die. Um, but it's, it's, it's interesting. Bernie Sanders had a kind of disastrous interview with the New York Daily News. It was the Daily News, I think. Yes. Um, and it – in it, he, he did say something about not holding gun manufacturers liable, but the rest of the interview is so – it's so interesting to read because it, geez, there are so many things where he said as a response to some fairly tough questioning from the interviewers, I don't know or I'm not sure about that or uh, that's not something I've looked into and he would sometimes mistake the powers of the president – uh, for other things, he didn't have good answers on some of his Wall Street proposals. It just—it really was a very bad interview. Uh, it's interesting. The thing that, that that was pulled pulled out of that is the gun thing. Um, that does seem. I think you're right. I think that's a, a comfortable wedge issue for Hillary supporters to go after. But it also this entire interview feeds into the the narrative that Hillary Clinton is trying to 
to build up about Bernie Sanders is that he's sort of a one-trick pony. He's only got um, his one thing that he's mad about, uh, Wall Street, and he doesn't really have a lot of good positions or solid positions on other issues. And he really doesn't even have a great answer uh, for how he's actually going to do any of those things that he wants to do. So on the one hand, yeah, I think I think that this is a comfortable way to bash him, but their whole thing was a was a way for him to kind of stumble. I don't know if it's hurting him, though. Well, you know, one thing, that Matt, that will be interesting, if we get through the 26th and Bernie Sanders walks out of here with anything approaching a double-digit uh, margin, we'll be reminded of something that we kind of already know, which is that the leadership of this state, whether it's the governor, the senators, the congressional delegation, I mean, they're establishment Democrats, you know, and they uh, are going to fall in line with Hillary Clinton. The superdelegates are going to break that way. I mean, you just kind of know that. But the state is incredible if anything, more polarized, polarized within its own Democratic Party. And these union demonstrations we see up at the state capitol or at Hartford City Hall are part of it. They're just a lot of people who are really unhappy with the status quo in a way that isn't reflected in the politics of the people they've elected to high office. Well, yeah. I mean, that, that, uh, that sort of gets what I was saying before, that there's sort of a, a huge protest vote uh, against sort of the establishment. And again, that used to sort of capture kind of a fringe percentage of the electorate. And now suddenly it may be a majority of the electorate that sees this real divide between kind of the, you know, political class and, and folks on the ground, whether they're uh, struggling Republicans or struggling Democrats. There's just a sense that they're not being represented. And Hillary uh, is, you know, all but like a prototypical establishment candidate. And, and it's tough because Susan's absolutely right that her her focus now should be Look how he sort of talks a good game and says the sorts of things that appeal to you, uh, but he doesn't really have a way to get there. But but if she does that, first it makes the focus on Bernie's policies, not anything she would do. And it kind of highlights the fact that – and just so we're clear, I'm not breaking up Wall Street. I'm not giving you free college. No, you're going to get pretty much more of the same. So vote me. Uh, and, and you know that's kind of a, a dangerous uh, path to go down. Well, she doesn't have to do that, though. She doesn't really. She doesn't even have to go after him. I don't think because if you look at the delegates, she's won. It, this this is over. Mm. This this is over. He's, he's doing a lot of damage to her, though. He is, yeah. and that's that's all he can do is he can be on. a spoiler. That forty million dollars that he raised last month, by any measure, was spectacular. It's staggering. Something so, something's going on, and I think in Connecticut. I mean, talking to. Just anecdotally with friends, most of my friends are Democrats and, and so uh, I think a lot of them are, are going to – they don't particularly care for Hillary Clinton. When we think of an unlikable Democrat, she's sort of what comes to mind like Ted Cruz for the Republicans and um, I think they're going to vote for uh, – they're going to vote for Bernie Sanders knowing he's not going to be nominated but they can tweak her a little bit and they'll vote for her in the fall but they'll feel better about their April vote. We're going to do this really quickly because I'm going to fry the clock otherwise. But uh, Kevin Rennie, uh, uh, a little while ago in the context of John Kasich, you said, well, Connecticut Republicans are used to casting futile votes. Uh, well, we have to talk about the Connecticut Senate race then. We've got yes, – um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that seems so unfair. But Dick Blumenthal is, let's be honest, we can't uh, – Not everybody gets a setup like that, no, by the way. No, true, true. So uh, Dick Blumenthal, very tough uh, candidate to beat. Uh, it looked for a while as though, uh, well, there was the Larry Kudlow period. Uh, then there was the August Wolf period. He's having more campaign staff problems than 
than anybody except for maybe Ben Carson. So we solved that by hiring Ben Carson's staff. But uh, and now Dan Carter, a state representative from Bethel, gets into the race. I don't know. Does any? I mean. It, one argument you can make, Kevin, is the Republicans typically, when they nominate the Jack Orchulis and the Brooks Johnsons and all these other sort of boutique uh, Republicans that you and I are the only people who remember their names, um, they don't get much out of it. Like when it's all over, they haven't built up the visibility of anybody who's ever going to do anything again. So they the have unrealistic Dan- expectations yeah. of what it means to be nominated for the United States Senate in Connecticut. Right. So at least with Dan Carter, they get somebody who I don't know. Maybe they can groom him. I don't know much about him or whether he's groomable. But uh, well, he he's run for office before. There you go. So he has some understanding of what a campaign involves, even though this would be in a far greater scale. I think he's probably tied. Well, He's probably tired of being in the minority in the House of Representatives. So why not do something like this to raise his profile? Republicans in Connecticut think that 2018 is going to be a better year for them than they've had lately. And so if he makes uh, some friends around the state, he's probably uh, enhanced his ability to get a spot on the ticket somewhere. Um, we might just have to take a break here so we'll have time for a final segment uh, and some sports thing. We love the sports thing. So we'll take a break and we'll come back with that. And we're back. Uh, we're back with Kevin Rennie, Susan Bigelow, and Matt Kaufman. This is The Wheelhouse. I'm Colin McEnroe, John Dankowski, on tour uh, as a groupie for Iron Maiden. So um, very quickly, I want to say tonight – uh, first of all, th- this afternoon we're going to rerun a show that we did last December. It's a show about the placebo effect. Uh, if you didn't hear it, you're going to want to hear it. Uh, whatever you think you know about the placebo effect will be upended uh, by this show. Meanwhile, that's so because tonight I'll be at uh, the Watkinson School for what we call the Freshly Squeezed series. We're going to talk about public investment in sports. We're going to talk about specifically uh, the Yard Goats. The owner, Josh Solomon, will be there. Uh, Oz Griebel, who's on the stadium authority and who's uh, the head of the Hartford uh, Metro Hartford Alliance, will be with us in uh, Victor Math. A sports economist from Holy Cross will be with us. Will be people in the audience from Whaler Nation. People still hope the Whalers will come back. Please come back someday, uh, and maybe some of the people who oppose public investment in sports. So, what do you get for your money? Uh, how much money makes sense to spend? We'll all be talking about that tonight. You can come. It's at seven p.m. Go to Watkinson.org. Look for the freshly squeezed box and order your tickets so that we know that you are coming. Uh, all right, build more stadiums. More stadiums. More stadiums. Uh, and if we have time, we'll get. Uh, Matt has been looking. At the one of the uh, stadium things that kind of didn't happen, but but first of all, Matt Kaufman, uh, last night uh, I think you were using your tremendous quantitative uh, acumen to follow the women's basketball championship. Uh, I think first of all, a round of applause for this group is in order. Did you learn anything as you graphed? What were you doing? What were you doing? You were doing something. Uh, well, I, I just put some data visualizations together so that you can sort of scroll across a chart and you know see how the points go. And added one where you can scroll and kind of see player by player mm-hmm. uh, how the points went throughout the game. So just a, another way of looking at the trend. So I, I will say th- these graphs tend to be more interesting when the games are closer and you can see how many uh, you know, times. As the, do the, the games change. themselves, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, there was, there was a 16-0 run last night for Syracuse, yeah. and that, that made it at least uh, moderately interesting. So. 
Um, I mean, this is just the weirdest thing, Susan, because obviously we have this fabulous thing here, this thing that represents excellence in the way that you want the state to represent excellence. So you can put it in your tourist slogan. You can say we're cooler and warmer and we have like the best basketball team ever uh, with uh, this unbelievable dynasty. But there's always that little kind of drumbeat, which is, you know, you win by 40 points uh, on average. It just – you know, you're inevitably going to be compared to the final on Monday night of the men's side, which was decided by back-to-back three-point shots, 4.7 seconds apart. You know, people's pacemakers were stopping, you know, and UConn may never get that. It's just it's not their fault. No, it's not their fault. And you notice that people's – it feels to me like people's interest in UConn women's basketball has waned. If you think about where it was in the 1990s, it feels like the interest has gone way down because – it's not as entertaining to watch as it was because, yeah, they win and they win by a lot. If you like watching 40-point blowouts, great. But don't forget a lot of the sports that we watch, it's all about entertainment. So, you know, it's it's fantastic. They are a wonderful team. Uh, we should be very proud to have them here. They do great. But is it compelling? Uh, after a certain time period, I don't think it necessarily is. Well, some people find it compelling anyway. I mean, some people enjoy it. Oh, absolutely. It's great for the state. And um, I think it's especially still, you know, some of us grew up in an age where women's sports got no attention at all. And I think for for, um, young women and particularly for girls uh, in in school, this is is tremendous. And uh, the one thing I wonder though and not knowing a lot about how these things work is – why haven't more college basketball – women's college basketball teams sort of been able to figure out how UConn does it and emulate that? I mean it's not – I mean in terms of it's not – there's not – it's not magic. There's, there's some there's some formula or some practices that Gino Auriemma has, has adopted and implemented that I would think that others would have figured out and would be able to – Emulate. I know that I was listening to Sue Bird in an interview on Hang Up and Listen, and she was saying, well, people talk about how many McDonald's All-Americans we get. Well, a lot of other schools get just as many, and something else happens at UConn, too. So Gino Auriemma gets a lot of credit. So, by the way, uh, Tucker is telling me that since UConn won $3 burritos at Moe's, so mention the name Tucker Ives, and you'll get a $3 burrito. May I, we, may I just mention one other thing? Yeah. Because you've known me a long time. I have. You don't, when you think of sports, you don't think of me. That doesn't necessarily I true. think it is true. I was in a pool with 20, 26 entries. I came in third. I just want you to know I came in third. In the men's bracket? or mm-hmm. yeah, okay. Yes. Well, excellent. Congratulations. Thank you. I didn't, I didn't written how, you how off. How many people were in the pool? 26. Okay. All right. yeah, so, yeah, yeah. No, not three. <laughs> not three. 26. So speaking of watching, uh, one thing – we're running out of time here. But one thing is, that has made a lot of Yankee fans really unhappy is the fact that they can't watch the Yankees on uh, Comcast. How unhappy are the Yankees fans? What does it sound when, like when Yankee fans whine? This is what it sounds like. Hey, Comcast, give us back Yes Network so we can watch the Yankees. I see you tripled our regional sports network fees. So you're charging us more and giving us less? Instead of the Yankees, all I see is fees. I just switched to another TV provider, and it was easy. Switch now to a TV provider that carries Yes. Visit keepyesnetwork.com to learn more. 
Well, you know, Matt Kaufman, when I have a question about business, I just look, pick up the Danny Hart column. And so Danny uh, makes the argument today that this is all kind of good, that Comcast is refusing. It certainly is a battle between two empires that a lot of people hate, Comcast and the Yankees, uh, and that, in fact, um, the Comcast is refusing to pay the high carriage fees that Yes wants to charge, but you can get them some other ways. We want to diversify uh, cable marketplace anyway, so if people start hunting around for other ways to watch this, that's good. Well, I think the most important thing is that both sides continue taking out full-page ads in the current. <laughs> yes. I think that's that's the uh, the real sort of bottom line here. Uh, you know, I, I despise the word disruption partly because it's affecting my industry, um, but. The way people get their video entertainment um, is indeed changing, and, and it's probably appropriate that uh, we are sort of testing some different waters here and that there's uh, disagreements, even among these you know, gargantuan conglomerates. Um, there, there should be some sort of forced rethinking about how much all this costs, exactly how we get it. I pay a fortune on my cable bill. I was just telling someone the other day, uh, I think when my sort of current contract is up, it's time to like really rethink can I do this on an a la carte basis? I have computers attached to all my TVs. Why am I paying through cable? So um, I, I think it can be valuable just for that, for, for sort of rethinking what should this industry look like going forward. I'll tell you, I, I, do, I do not have cable. We do not have satellite. We cut the cord. Uh, we just use our Roku. It's great. We, do, we haven't looked back. We stream everything. And my, I would say my message to Yankees fans is New Britain B's baseball is just around the corner. New Britain B's baseball is just around the corner, but as Josh Solomon will be talking about with me tonight, uh, Hartford Yard Goats, you're going to have to wait a while. May 31st is now kind of the drop-dead date. What are you, you're shaking your head over there. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry to end this as we begin. I just, the whole thing is just a fiasco. Well, it, you know, it is a fiasco. I, I, I hope they're paying you a lot of money to host that <laughs> forum tonight because – it's going to be madness. It, well, it has been a fiasco in various ways, although I do feel as though the only thing, the only principal thing we can do now, because the money has been spent, the money is committed, uh, presumably they're not going to ask for $10 million more million, uh, is root for the yard goes, root for the bees, hope this stuff is all really successful. Uh, because, yeah, it did cost a lot of money. Maybe the process wasn't always what we hoped it would be. But uh, once the yard goes get, get playing, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to the games. I'm going to cheer. I'm going to buy a really stupid hat. Uh, I'm going to do all that stuff. I hope everybody does because we're not getting the money back. So let's try to make this thing uh, a happy thing and a successful thing. Thanks so much to Tucker Rives, Kion Wolf, to Matt Kaufman and Susan Bigelow and Kevin Rennie, our panelists today. John will be back next Wednesday. Thanks for listening. Ivy's brother left for the career.